For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where L is for Live and Let Die, the eighth James Bond film released in 1973 that marked the debut of Sir Roger Moore as 007. Uh, names, we normally do names at this point, but names is for tombstones, baby. Um, wow. So <laughs> my name is Tom Butler and joining me as we jo- journey into the world of voodoo and espionage is a man who, when he was young and his heart was an open book, he used to say, live and let di- live. And let live. Bungled that one, didn't I? Awful. Awful. It's me, isn't it? You know you did. You know you did. You know you did. It's Mr. Brendan Duffy. And Live and let die. Yeah. There's nothing left for him to do. I'm excited <laughs> no. about this. And joining him is a small-headed man of limited means who lost a fight with a chicken. It's Mr. Tom Wheatley. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. I like that one. Yeah. So, Five out of ten. Welcome back, Mr. Wheatley. We've missed you these last two weeks, um, but it's glad to, glad to have you back. Um, oh, you did a fantastic job without me. Yeah. Getting worried. <laughs> um, so let's quickly talk about Live and Let Die before we jump into it. Um, what are your general opinions on this film? Do you remember seeing it for the first time, etc.? I was probably about 12 or 13, watched it on VHS, and I remember watching it pretty soon for the second time, straight after, like very close together. Um, I just visually, it was very interesting, uh, you know, when you're that age. Um, and it's it's a fun story. Yeah, I uh, I can't actually remember the first time I watched Living That Die, but I do think it's one of the ones that I've watched the most. Mm. As I've said to Brendan before, I think it's, apart from you know a lot of the subject matter, I think visually and tonally, it is, for kids, it's one of the most exciting ones because it's just, just fun. There's just like lots going on. I think I probably ended up watching that one more than a lot of the other ones when I was a kid. I definitely remember Baron Samley being a really big, point of that film that I remember from a young age. Yeah, because he's the, he's the draw, isn't he? Because he's quite terrifying when you first meet him. Yeah. Without Baron Samadhi, it would be a very different film. Baron Samadhi turns it into a very fun, exciting romp for, for, for younger people. Yeah. Yeah, which is weird to say because it is one of the... Um the supernatural type ones isn't it but i guess that maybe that's what gives it the edge it kind of for me it was a, a, of a piece with um temple of doom i think as a child had that sort of uh supernatural edge to it um and i think that helps but i think it is i mean tom manquitz's script i think is is very it's, it's quite funny i know we were critical of it in uh 
diamonds are forever but i think i don't know i think there's a, there's a lot of fun in this uh that's had yeah with the yeah. with the well, story we'll talk about tom mankowitz in a bit but i mean that they they definitely wrote for roger for this for this film and cleverly so they didn't write for sean in this and um it really it pays off i think Yes, it really does. Um, so let's jump in with a uh, quick summary of the plot from the 007 website. So James Bond uncovers a plan by a drug kingpin to get the world hooked on heroin. Investigating the murders of three British agents, 007 finds himself the target of Harlem gangsters as he closes in on a dangerous criminal mastermind. Teaming up with a female tarot card reader, Bond tracks his adversary to a Caribbean island where he encounters assassins, crocodiles and voodoo. So... To kick things off, so if you haven't listened to one of these episodes before, this is uh, looking at the making of Live and Let Die. Um, so we'll be looking into a lot of the stories behind uh, the film. Um, and to kick things off, uh, we will look at what things were like in Hollywood in 1973. So in 1973, MGM were going through quite a big change, actually. Um, and I think we're going to cover MGM, aren't we? At some point. I think well, we the studio. Should. There's a bit the, the studio MGM, yeah, because there's, there's a lot. There's a lot to discuss in the, the, the effect of they have on the the Bond franchise, of course. Sure. A lot of but tax involved as well. Loads of tax to get our teeth into as well. Oh, I'll get a couple of episodes out of that. <laughs> um, so, so at this at this point, they were sort of they were losing quite a bit of money, and um, they were being downsized and changing their business model, which meant they were making fewer films each year. Um, and they were focusing on location shooting, so where in, in the past we, there were massive sound stages. So the knock-on effect, obviously, is that they start selling off their assets and, and stripping down budgets, which, you know, considering Diamonds Are Forever had a budget of £7.2 but I guess Bond was the, one of their big assets. You know, the rest of them they were sort of getting rid of. They were um, even to the point of selling the ruby slippers from Wizard of Oz. You know, they, they were... They were really sort of stripping back, um, but in terms of the budget, uh, Diamonds Are Forever seven point two million, one point two five of that is for Connery, of course, and then this one is seven million. So a couple of years later, but it's a it's a smaller budget. And then films, the biggest, the highest grossing films internationally that year. So Live and Let Die is actually third in this list, ahead of American Graffiti. Any ideas what is first and second? Godfather, Dirty no, Harry. Neither. Enter the Dragon is number two. Oh, okay. Ooh. With $350 million. And The Exorcist. Oh. Uh, yeah. $441 million. So we've not yet reached the point of sequels yet. It's it's all original sort of stuff. I remember those days. <laughs> Heaven. <laughs> Apart from Bond, obviously. That's, that's a sequel. So... In terms of uh, Harry and Cubby as well, their relationship was was becoming strained, and it's something that Roger actually mentions in his, in one of his books. Even by the time he was that he was sort of on board to make make the film, the they'd agreed to divide those duties. So this one was a Harry Saltzman film, and uh, Broccoli had had overseen Diamonds Are Forever. So Roger said sometimes he had to dodge the crossfire. And both himself and Guy Hamilton became exasperated at times with Saltzman's sometimes unpredictable decisions during the filming. So MGM are not, not doing too healthy. The, the Eon relationships sort of beginning to break down and they need to find a new Bond. Yes, well, they've been working on a new Bond for quite a while 
now with uh, on a Magic Secret Service, and obviously Sean Connery came back for Diamonds Are Forever. But at this point, Broccoli and Saltzman they they tried again. They tried to convince Sean Connery to come back after Diamonds Are Forever did quite well at the cinema, and they obviously they wanted to come, him to come back, but he declined. Sean just did not want to come back um, again. And there's an interesting quote from Tom Mankiewicz. He had the there's a writer, scriptwriter, who talks about having a sit down with Sean Connery. And saying to him, do you, want to, do you want to read the script, Sean? And Sean said, no, I absolutely just do not want to read the script. And Mankiewicz kind of suggests in this that he was worried that if he read it, he would be tempted to come back. So he just absolutely just avoided um, any opportunity to come back. And um, the conversation went on for a while and Mankiewicz sort of played devil's advocate with him and said, but, you know, what about your obligation to your fans? And Sean got a bit riled with it and he was saying, look, what is my obligation? Do I have to do 15 pictures over 30 years? What is it? So it wasn't something... Sean wasn't in, in the picture. He was clearly... It was never going to work out. Um, and it was he definitely didn't need the money either. Um, so um, at this point, uh, Cubby and Harry, they they sort of moved on from, from the idea and they just said, look, it bonds the star not the actor and we can use anyone for it and it's a mentality they had with on a magic secret service which really didn't pay off at that point but at this point they they used that mentality again and and luckily it did pay off for them so loads of people were in the running to be in live and let die there's a long list adam west burt reynolds uh reynolds uh, didn't actually want to play the role because he said it had to be a, a british actor other people julian glover who eventually plays uh, christastos in fiori's only John Gavin, Jeremy Brett, Simon Oates, Timothy Dalton was in discussions at this point. Michael Billington. Hey. Poor Michael. Um, he was the front runner, actually, according to sources at the time. So he was very likely that he was going to get it at that point. Um, Anthony Hopkins met with um, Cubby Broccoli at the time, but Hopkins just didn't think that part was right for him. But eventually, they sort of stumbled upon Roger Moore who obviously been in The Saint and The, and the Persuaders, so had a good bit of pedigree when it comes to spy thrillers. He was definitely a good fit for the time. He was very, very big. He was one of the biggest actors in the world at the time. So he seemed like a, a no-brainer. And he'd also been considered or been under discussion for previous ones as well um, in, in the series earlier on, uh, especially around the Managed Secret Service. So eventually he was chosen. Poor Billington remained at the top of the list if more declined, but obviously he didn't. And it's it's something that paid off. Uh, so I won't talk about the, the the money that it made or anything like that at the moment. But Times Are Forever sold ten million t- more tickets than Animated Secret Service in the US. Live and Let Die did really well, um, even compared to that. So yeah, it was a gamble that that, that paid off, and um, yeah, they got Roger in. Yeah, I read it somewhere as well that they had uh, actually took out advertisements in an army magazine, putting in an open casting call to find the next 007 to oh, see what right. would happen and apparently equity the actors union objected very strongly to that thinking it, it should go to an actor rather than someone from the armed services but i, I didn't know that until i was looking into it uh, recently mm, interesting sounds um, like a, a marketing thing to me yeah it does doesn't it yeah um yeah. they've already tried the non-actor thing yeah 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 it sounds like a classic bit of um studio marketing when, yeah. when you're already in discussions with about 20 different actors yeah, um, about the role. So yeah, they'd found Roger. I think Roger had couldn't do Honor Majesties because it was of the Persuaders, I think. Um, but now was the yeah. time for him. 
So uh, talking about Roger, this is Roger Moore, by the way, talking about his first secret meeting with director Guy Hamilton. He said, we met at Scott's in Mayfair in true Bond style, over a dozen oysters and martinis. I confessed to Guy that in reading the script, I could only ever hear Sean's voice saying, my name is Bond. And Guy said, look, Sean was Sean and you are you and that is how it's going to be. So Roger landed himself a deal reportedly worth a million dollars plus a percentage to play 007 across three different movies. Um, his salary for Live and Let Die was said to be $180,000, which would then rise $60,000 per film, and then profits starting at 2.5% of the gross, rising up to 3.25%. Talking about it, Roger said, the money is comforting, I'll make no bones about that, but it's not the God and the goal. I'm happy as long as I can make enough for my children to continue living in good style. Possibly by doing Bond, I will be able to move myself out of 14 years of television. So um, Roger's appointment um, as Bond was made official at a press conference at the Dorchester Hotel in August 1972, um, where he was introduced. Photographed alongside Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. Those photos are quite famous. Um, you'll have seen them. I think Roger's smoking a cigar and he's got long hair at the time. And one of the first things that they said to Roger when they gave him the role was that he had to have a haircut and to lose some weight because they felt his hair was too long and he was overweight. So that's what he did. Got into shape for it. Right. So mentioned his name already. Guy Hamilton. But he's the director. He's directed two previous bills. Goldfinger and the one before this, Diamonds Are Forever. So in terms of finding out about why they went for him, it seems like it's because the continuity and, and then of getting, you know, he was signed at the same time as Roger Moore and they wanted him to basically oversee the the big task of introducing a new 007. But other than that, it's quite hard to find other reasons why. I mean... I, th- I think he's got a track record. I think that speaks for itself, doesn't it? I think it makes it safe, safe pair of hands. Yeah. Safe, yeah, exactly. But on the actual night before the first day of shooting, Roger actually slipped a note under Guy Hamilton's door, and it said, "Good luck for the following day, and do break a leg. If I don't do what I'm told, you have my full permission to kick me up the backside." So on the first day of filming, after his his workout, Roger he found a little envelope had been pushed under his door, and it was a note from Guy Hamilton, and it said, "Dawn D Day." And uh, apparently Roger says, it says, into battle and very encouraged by your kind note. Here's good fortune to us all, as ever, Guy. So seems like they've got a good relationship and think that's important on uh, how things, you know, end up with, uh, with especially when you've got a new bond. Uh, and especially what we've seen from, you know, when we did the Lazenby episode, a good relationship between your main actor and crew is is important. But with with a, a director and a Bond, you need a script. Yeah, so the script for Live and Let Die was decided during, or the, the concept of it was decided during the filming of Diamonds Are Forever. Um, and Live and Let Die was chosen as the next Ian Fleming novel to be turned into film because Tom Mankiewicz, uh, and he said that it would be daring to use black villains as the Black Panthers and other racial movements were active at the time. So it's clearly a, a move. As we know with Bond films, they often move towards the the things that are happening in the world and, and trying to stay relevant to things that people care about. Mankiewicz said, uh, they, Cobby and Harry, asked me which of the two of or three novels I'd like to write. Not that my choice would have been final. 
they sent me three books. Moonraker was one of them. And I said, I think you guys should do Live and Let Die because it's very much an issue in the world today. And a lot of discussions went on within the script writing. Um, Mankiewicz uh, suggested that they film, in, I sort of talked to Hamilton about it and said he's filming New Orleans. Um, he There was some discussion around using Mardi Gras as a focus, but in Thunderball, they featured uh, Junkanu, which is a similar um, festival. So they wanted to do something similar, but they decided to use New Orleans and the, the, the jazz funerals and the, and the canals uh, to get a similar sort of style, but not not copying what was in Thunderball. Interestingly, they really took it quite seriously to, to, to get into the world of voodoo and um, really understand how to, to write about that. So Saltzman Broccoli took Hamilton uh, and Mankiewicz uh, and Sid Kane to go to New Orleans and the islands of the West Indies to sort of learn more about the locations, but also learn more about the culture of, of, of voodoo and, 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 and how it all worked. So another thing that uh, obviously Tom Mankiewicz was, who wrote the script is quite, he was working with a new new Bond and it's a very difficult thing to write for a new Bond if, if you know, it's a character that's existed for a long time. It's so ingrained with Sean Connery and he talks about how he wrote it for Roger. So we've seen this in a few Bond films where the Bonds, the films aren't necessarily written for the Bonds that originally were meant to be in them. Probably the most relevant is the Timothy Dalton, Piers Brosnan area where we talk about Goldeneye. Some of the scenes sort of work more for, for Timothy Dalton than probably Piers Brosnan. At this point, it sounds like Mankiewicz just went full in and said, look, just got to play to Roger's strengths. He's a funny guy. He's he's a comedian in, in the way that he acts. That's how we're going to write it. We're not going to try and make him Sean Connery. We're not going to try and change the way that Roger works. And I think it's massively to it to their credit for doing that because can you imagine Roger trying to play Sean? It just just wouldn't work. And they 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 and Mankiewicz realised this. He understood that and and just knew that they had to play to to, to his strengths. Say so, uh, one of the references he talks about is Roger when he walks into the filet uh, filet of soul. And it's just, it's almost like a comedy moment where it's so ridiculous him walking in and because it's Roger and he's raising his eyebrow in there and it's a really strange scenario to be in. Sean would have walked in and punched someone straight away, whereas <laughs> Roger's just like the joke who just, it, it, but it, it plays well and um, definitely to the to the strengths of, of, of Roger. So Tom Mankiewicz also worked with Jeffrey Holder quite a bit uh, and I talked about um, the voodoo culture earlier and um, Jeffrey Holder sort of helped Mankiewicz learn about that. So they went to some ceremonies uh, and also Mankiewicz learned how to do tarot card reading so he could really understand how important that was in that culture and also just how it worked. Uh, interestingly, Richard Maybaum later claimed that he was asked to write the film, but he said he, he wasn't going to do it because he was too busy. Uh, but he also says that he, he didn't like the final film. He says, uh, to process drugs in the middle of the jungle is not a Bond caper. So yeah, an interesting process for for pulling this the script together for this, and 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 surprisingly, when I was going through this, the amount of effort that's gone into really learning about or that 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 culture is is absolutely phenomenal. But I did read something interesting from um, Jane Seymour, uh, where she talks a little. Uh, she says she's good friends with uh, Tom Mankiewicz. And um, she was asking him how they, they they write the stories and how they come up with them. And he says, uh, basically, you just just choose where you want to go on holiday because uh, you've got to spend like six to eight months there so you know work based on the principle of where you want to go and he wanted to go to Jamaica and New Orleans so um, yeah that's probably uh, a more important factor in how they decided to to choose the next Bond film Guy Hamilton talks about that as well yeah he's always just saying oh where do, where do we want to go yeah. 
I suppose yeah. in those days it was like travel was so rare, especially to these amazing places. So if you got the opportunity, it's a once in a lifetime thing. Mm. You're not going to say, let's do the Bond film in Scotland. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. Let's do the Bond <laughs> film in uh, Jamaica and New Orleans. But yeah, smart move and it you know, pays off. There's a um, really good Tom Mankiewicz commentary on the Live and Let Die. And um, he talks about um, the difference between writing for Sean and writing for Roger. And he said something along the lines of, you can imagine Roger uh, Sean Connery's James Bond charming a woman at a dinner table and then pulling her forward and then stabbing her under the table as like revenge for something. He said, you can imagine Roger charming a woman at a dinner table, but not the stabbing of the woman. Mm. And that's sort of the difference between, between Sean and Roger's, Roger's bond. He goes to some lengths, I think, to set Roger's bond apart from Connery in the certain things that they do. So you'll notice that, you know, Roger Moore doesn't have the Walter PPK in this film. Uh, Roger Moore orders whiskey in a in the bar rather than a vodka martini. You see mm-hmm. Bond getting his briefing in 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 Bond's flat rather than in M's office, so that you can that you can see the deliberate a cigar. attempts. He smokes a cigar. Yeah, doesn't wear the, a tu- uh, white tuxedo. Doesn't go to the cinema. Uh, no. Cinema. Go to the casino. Never goes to the cinema. <laughs> <in it. laughs> Not like Sean, constantly at the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we don't see him driving, uh, you know, an Aston Martin. So there's de- yeah. deliberate attempts, and you and you don't really notice it unless like someone points it out to you. But you realise that yeah, they are really trying to do something different with Roger. Um, I think it's really well done. It's not too over the top. Um, yeah, it's a smart move. If they hadn't, if they if they had not have really thought about it and just gone, okay, another Bond film, same style. It might not have worked. It might be the end of Bond. Yeah. Right, the key crew, uh, so we've talked about Guy Hamilton and Tom Mankovic. Uh, elsewhere, you've got Ken Adam was uh, committed to actually to work on the film Sleuth, um, the Michael Caine, Laurence Olivier, who done it. So um, the, it, it, he's the long-time Bond production designer, obviously. But um, So Sid Caine, someone we've talked about before, he was he was signed up as the production designer. Um, and like you said, Caine, along with Cubby and, and Hamilton and Mankovic, went on this scouting trip. They went to... Um, yeah, a number of different places. And they looked at a voodoo, a voodoo ceremony in Haiti, uh, and uh, but they couldn't film there because of the uh, the political situation there. So um, it was on a recce in Jamaica that Sid Kane found Ross Kananga's crocodile farm with the sign, Trespassers Will Be Eaten. And so that then ended up in the film. And I think, if I'm right, that scene was originally going to be on a coffee plantation and there was going to be a, a, a situation with a coffee grinder um, but in the end, it was changed to the crocodile pit because they just preferred that uh, and wanted to put it in from the um, Jamaican location recce. Elsewhere, you've got Ted Moore back as cinematographer on his sixth uh, out of seven of James Bond films that he'll do. Um, films edited by Burt Bates, Raymond Poulton and John Shirley. Costume design is by Julie Harris and then special effects is by Derek Meddins, who would be, go on to do um, special effects right up until GoldenEye. Um, which was his last film. But yeah, that's that's basically your, your key crew behind the scenes. Yeah, and then in terms of cast, you've got some uh, some returners. You've got Bernard Lee uh, as M, Lois Maxwell as Miss Moneypenny. Obviously, their scene doesn't take place in the usual, uh, as we said earlier, but they are in it. One notable absence, though, is Q, and very much comes from, the, from Saltzman and Broccoli not wanting to lean too heavily on gadgets which is what they where they felt it was it was going um more recently so they wanted to sort of downplay the the, the use of gadgets 
But at the time, Desmond Llewellyn, he was doing a TV show called Follyfoot. I imagine it's Wheatley's favourite, one of favourite shows. <laughs> Never heard of it, but I'm going to watch it tonight. <laughs> but And he'd actually, actually been written out of three episodes in order for him to be able to fit the scheduling in of shooting on Live and Let Die. So he was quite annoyed by the decision to be left out. But I, I, uh, I guess it's a, another one of those things, not only to, you know, to lessen the use of gadgets, but also step away from Connery for, for a film and give it some breathing space. But I, I, don't, I don't actually miss Q in this one. I think no. it's a smart move. Yeah. Move away from him in this, give the limelight a bit to the, the story and Roger's new Bond. Yeah. Interesting to say about moving away from the gadgets, though, because he does have a gadget watch and there is the exploding gas capsule thing as well. Yeah, um, I guess I guess it's not putting the importance on it in terms of that scene at the beginning where it's like this is how he's going to solve them. That's basically what the cue the cue scene is. Basically, this is how you're going to save the day and get yourself out of. I, I always th- th- the strange thing for that scene is uh, M says uh, you don't need to watch that expensive on on taxpayers' money. I'll get you a, a cheaper one. I think, Surely somebody you signed it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, as well as the returning cast, we've got some new cast um, with a few Bond girls in this one. Jane Seymour, who plays Solitaire, I think is a really interesting Bond woman in the series. And I, I, I do think she's somewhat problematic one as well. When Mankiewicz was, was pulling the, the ideas for the story together, he actually was... What, what Solitaire was going to be a black woman. And apparently Dana Ross was the first choice to, to play her. Um, but Brooklyn Saltzman decided that they couldn't do that and they wanted to stick to Fleming's description with a, a white woman playing solitaire. And they considered Catherine Deneuve, but eventually moved on to Jane Seymour, who, who was in a TV series called uh, Owner Din Line. The Owner Din Line? Never seen it. I only know Jane Seymour from... Dr. Quinn. Uh, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, which was sort of a reluctant thing that you watched in the old days of four channels. Where there was nothing else on, and you just kind of had it on in the room. You're like, why am I watching this? It's not even like a cowboy thing. So Jane Seymour plays Solitaire, who's who's kind of like a, uh, she's a tarot card reader. She has these powers, and uh, the powers come from uh, virginal qualities that she has that her mother once had, um, and she works for uh, Kananga. So she she plays this. It's quite a strange role. It's almost like like this protected youth in 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 the film, and then obviously. Roger Moore sweeps by and takes a power away from her, which by by buying a pack of fifty-two tarot cards that trick her into sleeping with him, which is a very strange scenario. I I can't, can't imagine anything like that happening now in a Bond film. I do think she's quite an interesting character in it. She's certainly different than a lot of the earlier Bond women that are in there. Jane Seymour talks a lot about Live and Let Die. It's like the high point of her career like it's it's she's very proud of being in it and all of the books that i've looked at she's got so many quotes that pop up and she talks about it quite a lot uh and there's a lot of stories about her on set with roger there's a really sad story that she talks about where roger played a trick on her and um when she started she went to sit down at the table for lunch and he made every, he tricked he said to everyone as soon as she sits down sit over on another table so everyone just moved to another table and she was just sat on her own. But she was only like 20 at the time. And she says at the time that she was 20, but around that that, that era, 
it was almost being like a 14 year old like she was so inexperienced she she hadn't done anything um to sort of prepare her for this and yeah she was just mortified by it and it really affected her and she's just quite a sad story it's kind of nice in the end she's she's goes to see roger and they discuss it much later on in life but yeah very sad uh john mankowitz says uh, jane did as well as she could and i know jane and i like her but she was very virginal casting uh which is an odd way of explaining it but it yeah just saying that she's she was very fresh and new and really wasn't very experienced in um in the role and i think that comes across quite clearly in in, in the way that she plays the role and I, I don't think it does it credit i don't like the role she has alongside Rod, roger's bond i think it's a little bit seedy she also talks a little bit about being on set and Guy Hamilton intimidating her because uh, he was just really good with cards. So he'd play around with his tarot card deck, shuffling them, throwing them in the air and doing all these cool things with her. And she just couldn't do it. She couldn't work out how to do, use the cards effectively. And it really, like, she really struggled with it. And that it was like the one thing she needed to be able to do for that role, just be able to manage cards. So yeah, so she talks about that quite a bit. But I think, um, yeah, I think she's uh, an interesting character. She's definitely one of those memorable for me as a kid. Again, when I'm talking about this sort of, it's a film made for children. I think children or young, you know, when you're a kid, you kind of understand her because she's almost a kid as well. So it's it feels a little bit like a fantasy film where you've got a, a kid playing the role. But I do, yeah, I do think it, it, it's, a, it's sort of a, it's not a very nice role either. I don't think you could do it these days. Then we've also got Gloria Hendry, who plays Rosie, who's the double agent. She's a CIA agent that's sort of inept and keeps making mistakes but you actually find out later on that she's a, a double agent and and roger threatens her when he realizes but she is a really interesting character in the annals of james bond because she is obviously one of the first black characters to appear in um a bond film as a love interest for bond and there was a lot of problems because of that and a lot of discussions that went on around that um i think we did we do it uh, we did we did, we did yeah. see for carver rosie carver back in the yeah so, back in one of the so go, go go back to that for a more detailed overview because I, I think i did that one and i think i went into quite a bit of depth you went down <laughs> um, a rabbit hole yeah yeah uh but just a bit of overview so so it it was a it was a tricky thing at the time to do and it, it actually meant that they didn't show, a, they blacked out a lot of the, the lovemaking scenes or the romantic scenes with her and Roger in cinemas a, across various countries at the time, which is obviously a, a massive thing. It was a big step forward, but the world wasn't quite ready for it. So it was a really tricky one. But they really liked her on set as well. And um, they really wanted to rewrite the script to, so that she didn't die at the point she did. And they they said to her, like, we, we, we really like you. We don't, we want you to, have a bigger part in this film and we don't want you to die off but they they just couldn't do it in the end really interesting thing and, that, and then i'll finish on gloria hendry is saltzman kind of got involved with the prejudice side of it at the time and he said uh, why don't you marry morris binder <laughs> so he introduced her to to binder and um they went on a few dates uh, but it, it wasn't working for them but uh, thanks saltzman for trying to solve that problem <laughs> and then just one more madeline smith Madeline Smith plays the uh, Miss Caruso, who is the young lady who is in bed with Roger at the start of the film and hides in the wardrobe when M's there. And she was recommended for the part by Roger after he'd seen her, uh, had appeared with her on television. Yeah, Smith said that Roger Moore was really nice to work with, but she felt very uncomfortable in, in the role because Roger Moore's wife was on set watching the scene at the time when they were in bed. And it's the first time 
that uh, he'd been bombed. So obviously it was an interesting thing for uh, her to be involved with. But I have major problems with this character because she almost seems like a 15, 16-year-old, 15-year-old. She seems very young and sort of confused about the scenario that, that she's in. It just doesn't doesn't sit well for me. I think it's a very strange hiring of a, a sort of role and character that they put into that. Uh, but that's Madeline Smith. They're the, the Bond women in The Minute Die. So, on to allies. We've got some really good allies here in uh, Live and Let Die. First and foremost, you've got Felix Leiter, and this is played uh, in this film by David Hedison, who we just discussed in last week's episode, Licence to Kill. So interesting that uh, this was his debut as as Felix Leiter. So he was the fifth actor to, to play the role of the CIA agent, who uh, is uh, one of Bond's most loyal allies. And um, David Hedison already knew Roger Moore from back in the day. He was having dinner with Tom Mankiewicz and he was the one who asked him if he wanted to play Felix Leiter. Uh, he said at the time Connery was going to play Bond, but then Roger signed on and I was thrilled because we were such good friends. He said he read the book uh, that it was based on. He said that he thought the character was fairly straightforward and not too far removed from the average American, except for the guns and fighting part. And then talking about Roger, he, took, he said Roger was always professional and ready to film. The most ir- remarkable thing about Roger was that he knew everyone on the crew by name and was always wonderful to them. So we've got a full episode on Felix Leiter coming up very, very soon. So we'll talk a bit more about him uh, in that episode. But just um, he, uh, David Hedison sadly died in 2019. And a, a little fun fact for you is that his daughter, Alexandra, is married to Jodie Foster. So there you go. That's um, a very fun fact. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Although it's almost impossible to explain that fact to anyone unless they're a big fan of Bond. Yeah. Um, it's not a good. Not it's not good uh, pub ammo, is it? So another a good interesting character in this film is uh, Harry Strutter. He is the second agent that's killed uh, in the jazz funeral procession. So he's another agent uh, working with Bond. Um, and interestingly, he's known for playing or originating the role of Popper in A Starlight Express, the musical. So there you go. You've got Quarrel Jr. Um, so after Quarrel was killed off in Doctor No, um, to bring him back in Live and Let Die, they had to bring him back as Quarrel Jr. And he was played in this film by a Jamaican-born British guy called Roy Stewart, who was a stuntman and actor. Um, he also had a gym in Kensington and one of the gym members at his gym was David Prowse, Darth Vader. Blimey, you're really throwing out the <laughs> random facts here. Listen, this is just the meat. There's no fluff here. <laughs> In, uh, here's another fun fact for you about uh, Roy Stewart. Roy Stewart ran a nightclub called The Globe, which is one of the last places visited by Jimi Hendrix before he died. So there you go. He also appeared in Carry On Up the Jungle, Doctor Who, Space 1999 and I, Claudius, and he died in 2008. And then the ally of, to end all allies, Sheriff J.W. Pepper, played by uh, Clifton James. Now, the character of of Pepper was was inspired by um, rural sheriffs that Guy Hamilton had met on road trips across America. And Tom Ankovitz introduced him to break up the boat chase sequence because that was a very long action heavy sequence and it needed something just to break it up a little bit. So um, Mankovitz said, I love writing dumb sheriffs. When you're writing a screenplay, sometimes characters just take off with you. 
there was just going to be a sheriff in the boat chase. But the more I was writing him, the more fun I was having with him. And Guy Hamilton just adored the character. So his part just kept getting bigger and bigger. Um, they considered the actor Slim Pickens to play him. You may know him from Doctor Strange Love, but they basically the casting director on this film, Marion Doherty, she knew um, Clifton James. And after five minutes of reading for the part, they just gave it straight to him. They just he was just perfect for it. And he is absolutely just takes this part and runs with it, doesn't he? I think it, like Baron Samadhi, he is fully committed to doing the most outrageous of things. And um, yeah, it was uh, inspired casting, if you ask me. Tom Mankovich later said that uh, it was perfect casting. He said all those Southern sheriffs down there all looked exactly like Clifton James. Clifton would say, hello, boy. And all these sheriffs would just keep laughing and say, God damn, you're funny. Clifton James, uh, speaking about it later on, he said, I just thought it was another job. I certainly didn't think it was anything special. I really didn't. I wasn't a big fan of James Bond. I'd only seen one with Sean Connery. Of course, once I did it, I realised it was a big deal. And he would later return uh, in the next film, The Man with the Golden Gun, in one of the most convoluted cases of <laughs> getting everyone back together again just for the hell of it. Um, Clifton James died in 2017 at the age of 96. Finally, just a little side note, probably my, it's not really an ally, but the character of Miss Bell from the Bleaker Flying School. She was played by an actor called Ruth Kempf, but I could not find literally anything out about her whatsoever. So I don't know. Uh, no fun facts on Ruth Kempf, unfortunately. She was probably actually there for a lesson. It, it was just, <laughs> I wonder she looks so confused. Mm. Maybe. You can actually buy signed photographs of Ruth Kempf. I found that on online. So you'd have to be quite a quite a big fan to be buying. That's a fun so, fact. Uh, autographs of her, yeah. How many, how many did you buy? <laughs> I got one for both of you. <laughs> so, in terms of villains, it certainly isn't Slim Pickens. Oh, very good. Yeah. <laughs> so, first off, we have Dr. Kananga, or Mr. Big, uh, played by Yafit Koto, who we covered very recently. So, go back to the K episode for more. But he was a, he was a New York-born actor, apparently descending from royalty from Cameroon but he's he's like we covered in the episode he, he was an alien as well he was in the Kevin Bacon episode wasn't he so we we, we did the six degrees three we degrees did. of Kevin Bacon yeah so in terms of this and many many reports you know he didn't have a, a, you know didn't have a great time he was professional and got on with it but he didn't get a, a good go in terms of post-production as well like when when it when the film was actually released he saw the opportunity it was. He said it was a huge break for me and for black actors and actresses in general. There had never been a black villain chasing James Bond before. When it opened, I wasn't allowed to attend the premiere because everyone was trying to hide Mr. Big. I was in Harlem in a bar, not far from where they shot, with some friends celebrating the opening. I felt kind of bad because I wanted to be with everyone else. So that seems a bit harsh, keeping him away, away from all that. But he did a bit of digging and... Um, there was a picture of him, and this was at the time of the Black Panthers, and there was a picture of him with raising his clenched fist that was that had surfaced, and apparently that was the real reason he wasn't invited to to all this, the the premiere and everything. And he, he you know, it was just a, a spur of the moment that he was photographed doing that, and um, it wasn't what it was made out to be. But unfortunately, you know, they, for whatever reason, saw that they didn't want him to be part of any of the promotional stuff. 
He also said, I had to dig deep in my soul and brain and come up with a level of reality that would offset the sea of stereotype crap that Tom Mankiewicz wrote that had nothing to do with the black experience or culture. So he he really has some uh, strong opinions on the film. Um, and apparently, I don't know if you read this, Wheatley, but Jane Seymour said he used to stuff his ears when he was acting. Yeah, I read that, yeah. Yeah, so something that Marlon Brando did as well, isn't it? Um, yeah, so you're not listening to what the other person's saying. No. So you can't react because you're just saying your lines, basically. And apparently Yafit Kotto did this. So, yeah, it, it, an interesting character. But in terms of the Dr. Kananga, Mr. Big, at any point where either of you, even when the first time you saw it, did you know that Mr. Big was Dr. Kananga? I reckon when I first saw it, I didn't know. No, I didn't so probably I wasn't did. paying attention to it. I didn't care. <laughs> Boring. He's not. He's not a voodoo character. It wasn't interesting. Move on. <laughs> but it is it? You look back on it, and it is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it is. The um, the way he's pulling his face off though is pretty terrifying. Yeah, to be honest. I was. I've got to say, love. I love Kananga in there. So he really commits to, to putting in a, a, a nuanced performance. I think. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. one of the. He, he's one of the best Bond villains. He's one of the most in-depth Bond villains. Like he's a he's a real character. He's not like a cipher, like some of the, you know, like Drax or something, where they're just serving a purpose. He's actually a character. He's it's a real actor doing a real real role. Yeah. And I can when I was reading about Cotto talking about the problems on set, you can kind of understand it because he's an actor. He doesn't want to be you know Hugo Drax or really like Blofeld. He wants to be pro- proper character and i think you can kind of there's a certain struggle you can see in the scenes where he's trying mm. to do that and he can't quite do it because the scene just won't allow it roger walks in and it just obviously turns to some ridiculous nonsense where roger's raising an eyebrow and he just can't do it and yeah i can, can understand the, the the problems that he faced i i think a lot of it probably stems from guy hamilton as well because he saw i think he sort of looked down upon the bond films a little bit in that he thought that they were just purely entertainment. You don't have to think too much about them. Let's yeah. just give the people what they want. Whereas Cotto comes in and he he wants to elevate it to something better than that. Yeah. He wants to commit. He's a proper actor. He's a trained actor. And so you can see that that clash. But I think, you know, Cotto comes out of it better, I think, because... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's the most one of the most memorable Bond villains for well, me, anyway. It, it's, it's not just the the, the sort of directorial script writing acting stuff i mean you're looking at the the official the, the racial issues at the time and and all those things so there's so many levels of what cotto was having to deal with at that mm. point that for, for an actor who just wants to act and be the best he can be it must have been the, the worst scenario to be in because there's so many things he's got to deal with at the time so I, yeah whenever i read it i'm like yeah i can complete completely understand that that's that's what was going on and uh, yeah it can't have been a nice scenario for him but he was brilliant nonetheless he, 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 really he was he up. was fantastic and it makes yeah. he actually um uh, he said that you don't see much of mr big not like goldfinger dr no and jaws and you think about that like promotionally and and throughout the years you don't it's it's really is bizarre because he's done such a good job it's in one one of the most watched bond films yeah but you rarely see him on a yeah. poster or anything um, yeah. so it's, it's very very bizarre justice you, for you, mr big yeah exactly yeah well live and let die is certainly a film of its era isn't it and it has issues because of that but um yeah, yeah. it's fantastic so uh we also have jeffrey holder as baron samady so that's kananga's wonderful uh, wonderful <laughs> who is, is, is uh 
the dancing voodoo master um, and Baron Samadhi. <laughs> Baron is Samadhi. He master? <laughs> Baron Samadhi is, is actually like um, part of the voodoo religion. He's a, a lower of Haitian voodoo. So a lower of the dead and the, like outside of Bond. Baron Samadhi is a, is a like a, a spirit, chaotic, a yeah. spirit of chaos, likes all the things that are bad for you in life and, and, and has inspired many things. The most interesting fact that I could throw up is it inspires um, the character in Princess and the Frog, Dr. Facilia. Yeah. And then when you look at it, you go, of course, of course <laughs> it's Baron Samadhi. So in, in terms of Jeffrey Holder, he was a, a trained dancer. There's lots of footage on the DVD as well of him sort of having dance sessions with the cast. And obviously he gets, he got to choreograph a lot of, a lot of those, well, all of the dance scenes that he's in six foot six. So, you know, really, really big lad, big lad. And yeah, I mean, you need to be playing that sort of character, I think. Um, oh yeah. You couldn't have had a Herge, what's his face? Different, different dynamic. But Jeffrey Holder, the opposite of Yafet Koto is, is, really proud of this his role of Baron Samadhi. Um he loved the part. It got him it gave him a chance to show off his choreography skills. He auditioned and chose the dancers in Jamaica. But there was a part of the film that he wasn't so keen on and it's the snakes. So you do wonder at this point are the filmmakers just having a laugh? They're going, "What? What don't these actors like? Let's <laughs> let's just throw whatever they're hating." Because especially with his death, where he has to fall into a coffin full of snakes. So with that in mind, Guy Hamilton knew that he he was going to be it was going to be a struggle to get him to actually do that scene and fall into the snakes. So wait until there was a royal visit. Princess Alexandra was visiting the set um, on the day it was meant to be filmed, and timed it with with having to shoot that and Jeffrey Holder being the professional he is not wanting to kick up a fuss just went ahead and uh, did it and didn't last very long in the snake in the snake coffin though but he did it and that's quite good tactics from Guy Hamilton evil but good <laughs> it's good to get it out of the way but yeah Baron Samadhi is is excellent and the, the like we said earlier the big draw when you're when you're younger it's a huge part of it you know such an interesting different character that don't think we've had one like that in Bond since. No, they wanted him to come back as well. That's why they put him on the train at the very end. They loved yeah. him as a character so much. They thought he could come back in future films, which is a, yeah. kind of a shame that he never did, really. Yeah, they went for Sheriff Pepper instead. But hey. <laughs> uh, so also we've got Julius Harris as Teehee. It's Kananga's main henchman with a pathetic hook arm, like a claw yeah, we did him uh, recently, didn't we? Yeah, we did. A really obvious, like, he's just holding it, because it, the way it protrudes out so much. But yeah, he was an American actor, been in lots and lots of films, lots of uh, black exploitation films as well. He said, I was going to meet Guy Hamilton, and at the meeting, he said to me, what kind of weapon would you like to have in, in the movie? So this is interesting that Guy Hamilton's really sort of open on this. and He's happy to take input from the actors. And he said, I knew there at the time that I had it. I used so many guns, so many knives, so why don't you give me something unusual like a hook? So there's the reason he's he's got that hand. It's because he, he did what he wanted something different. It's there's a thing about Bond films where and <laughs> it happens more in Bond films than most other films, where they give 
people these sort of, sort of physical abnormalities that are used as weapons. And they're worse than actual weapons. Like if he had two hands and a sword, that's a far more effective weapon than this hook, which is really hard to use. And if, if Roger Moore was holding a hook, it would be better than Teehee's hook. It's, it's a useless weapon. Always amazed by that. Always think, yeah, just give him a gun. So next, next up, we've got Earl Jolly Brown as Whisper. Whisper. Oh, Whisper. Whisper. Another, another of uh, Kananga's henchmen um, with his trait is that he only whispers. Stupid, stupid trait. Is it, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, Whisper is a villain too far. You didn't need him. <laughs> he, but it he, did need it did need Cab Driver 1 played by Arnold Williams didn't it yes it definitely needed the him um, I really like his character I thought he's quite playful and jokey with uh, you never really trust him either sinister yeah. overtones all the yes. time yeah mm. yeah so yeah there we go we've got a full cast in place Okay, let's move on to production. And let's let's start with the pre-title sequence, as we should always start with with a Bond film. And it's one of the most interesting pre-title sequences that we've seen in a Bond film because it doesn't feature Bond. The pre-title sequence is basically setting up what's happening in to agents around the world. Uh, there's three MI6 agents, and they're all killed in various ways within a 24-hour period. One is killed in the United Nations. He's sort of sat there listening to a talk in the United Nations, and they I always think it's a strange death, this, but somebody plays a loud noise in his ear and he dies. <laughs> That's it. That's all that happens. Like I don't know what happens. I, I don't know what caused that. There's the agent that's in the voodoo uh, Caribbean, Caribbean island, Samanique, where he's basically strapped up and they're all dancing around him and he gets killed. And then there's the big, the main scene of this, the one that everyone remembers, which is the funeral scene, which is in the streets of New Orleans, where we see a, a funeral procession going on and an agent watching it. And then a little chap wanders up to the agents and uh, um, they have a little chat. And he says, who's the funeral for? He says, it's for you. And then he stabs him. I don't understand about that scene. He stabs him like just randomly in the side and it dies instantly. Don't know what, don't know how that happened. It's a sign of old films, isn't it? You can get away with that. But there, so that whole sequence yeah, doesn't feature Bond at all, which is an interesting start because if you can imagine at this time, it's the first time anyone's seen this new Bond, and you don't get to see him in the opening sequence, which is very strange. Like you kind of expect they build up that, like you know, the Casino Royale. It was all about building up to this new Bond. That was a, that was the that was the principle. This one, you never see him. There's no reference to Bond at all. There's just really random men. All quite old as well. They don't look like very good agents, if you ask me. <laughs> the, the agent in the New York, in the United Nations, is, looks about... He's probably about 32, but he looks about 60. So, yeah, it's an interesting open, opening. It's quite also quite dark as well. It's it's like normally there's a there's a sort of... They're normally a little story, aren't they? The, the pre-title sequences and Bond comes in and he sort of fixes something and he shows off his coolness. It's just a dark opening. It's three blokes die, and you don't know why. It's a bit of voodoo. So yeah, a bit of a strange one. Um, but yeah. Uh, so um, aside from that, the scene in New Orleans with the funeral procession, there's there was quite a big focus on the music in that scene. They they really put a lot of effort into that. They had a famous trumpeter called Alvin Alcorn who plays the killer, and the the music that they play 
through, throughout the, the, the funeral march is called uh, Just a Closer Walk with Thee. Uh, and as soon as the agents are stabbed, the band instantly changes the song and they start playing a, 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 a track called Joe Avery's piece, uh, which is also known as the uh, New Second Line. And that's a really important, really well directed and, and set up sequence because it's, it's so quick. And it, we watch it now and you think, I know what's happening. But for a new audience watching that, that shift is so quick and swift and almost unexpected that it's, it's phenomenal. And then it just it just bangs into the opening title sequence. It's a, probably one of the most interesting pre-title sequences in the Bond canon. I only remembered when I rewatched it, I only really remember the funeral procession. I didn't remember the other two bits. But yeah, that's the pre-title sequence. I, I love that pre-title sequence. It's not it's not a vintage Bond one, but it's an interesting one for a film full stop, um, I think. I think it's just such a smart... I mean, they're trying to change things now. They're trying to make it different, and they really successfully do it, and it works. Like They could have gone down another route. It was a gamble. It was a massive gamble, um, but it worked, and I think it really sets up the film with a new Bond smartly. Yeah, I guess it harks back to the first two Bond films as well because they didn't also didn't have Bond in them, did they? So it wasn't like completely unheard of for no, the Bond no, films yeah. to yeah. to have done it before. But um, yeah. yeah, interesting. I, I also <laughs> saw that you know talking about people being scared of snakes. The guy that was uh, murdered with the snake apparently he was actually genuinely terrified of snakes and passed out while he was shooting the film, uh, <laughs> shooting that scene. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, in, it's in the fun. It's in the final cut, isn't it? It's, Is that right? When it, when he just yeah. yeah, that's him fainting. Wow. Incredible. <laughs> right. So the centrepiece of Live and Let Die uh, action wise is the huge boat chase that happens towards the end of the film. Um, and this basically they uh, they started filming this in October 1972 um, and it's uh, filmed in the Louisiana Bayou. It took 24 days to shoot. Uh, Peter Lamont was uh, on the art direction team and he was tasked with recce in the area um, and prepping the locations for shooting. Um, and he also had to buy, uh, reports say, between 20, 26 and 29 boats for the sequence. So he, he prepared all those boats for shooting as well. By the time they finished shooting the sequence, 17 of those boats had been completely destroyed. So when they had, uh, Tom Mankiewicz had been writing the script for the film, at this point in the script it just says, and there now follows the greatest boat, uh, boat chase ever committed to film. That wasn't <laughs> uh, obviously enough. And the idea of the boat chase was something that, if you remember, had been discussed for Diamonds Off Forever. So it was something that he'd had carried over from that film into this film. So once they'd scouted all these areas, they basically showed all these locations to Tom Mankovic. He then wrote the, the chase and then they went and, and shot it as, as it had been descri described in the script. Um, during scouting, they, they found this huge house that belonged to this family, the Treadaway family. And they basically knocked on the door, said, we're from the James Bond film. We'd like to shoot on your estate. And they said, yes, that is totally fine. On one condition, we want to be in the wedding scene as well. <laughs> so that he put them in the wedding scene uh, there. They, they actually became local advisors for the film, helping them find locations and stuff. So Guy Hamilton wanted um, Roger Moore... Uh, to be able to film Roger Moore actually driving the boat um, in close-ups, so Roger learned how to, to drive drive the uh, the speedboats. Um, but during rehearsals, he was driving this boat, the CV19, and he basically smashed it straight into a boathouse on the shore, and he fractured his teeth in the accident. So he, he wrote a, a diary for this film. Uh, called the 007 Diaries, which you can read uh, as a book. It's it's terrific. But he said, 
in his book. They say when death is imminent, your entire life flashes in front of your eyes. The only thing flashing before my eyes was a large corrugated iron shed sticking up out of the Louisiana Bayou, which I was approaching at a fair old 60 miles an hour in an out of control boat. I knew I was going to hit it and there was nothing I could do about it. My teeth, I felt, were the most important, so I saw a dentist first. A quick x-ray showed a fractured front tooth, which by then was hurting like mad. Then I was carted off to a clinic where the doctor gave me the good news that my leg wasn't broken. And then my wife, Louisa, gave me the bad news that my pants were dirty. Classic Roger uh, wit there, still (laughs) shining through. That wasn't the only time that Roger actually ended up in hospital either. He was hospitalised with kidney stones as well a few weeks into shooting the film. So the piece de resistance of the boat chase sequence is this massive uh, boat jump over Highway 39, uh, which goes over Sheriff Pepper and his car. They hired a local stunt driver called Jerry Como who would double for Bond and he actually did the jump for real and he set a Guinness World Record for the jump, 120 feet over two cars. And he took him six weeks of prep and 100 practice jumps to to do it. To make sure that the, the, the stunt was safe, they recreated everything and put made a, a, a Sheriff Pepper out of bamboo. And so if they decided that if they could do the jump three times without hitting Sheriff Pepper, then they would do it for real. And that's what they did. Um, So they did it, shot it, captured it all on film. They decided they wanted to do one more take. And on this second take, the boat took off, hit the water and then skidded on the wake of another boat and then flipped over onto the bank. Um, Luckily, the driver was not injured. And talking about the stunt, uh, the stuntman said, when I finally saw the film of The Leap, it scared the hell out of me. But it really is a terrific chase. It's long, but I think the addition of Sheriff Pepper really brings it to life. um, And it works really well for me. I I would have rather they used the bamboo Sheriff Pepper in the final final (laughs) cut. I I, I don't know why they went for a second take, though. You get it in one. You've, You've been lucky. Just take that. Yeah, 70s, uh, Yeah, they're expendable. <laughs> so in New Orleans, I mean, most you've covered you've covered this. I've got the the Olympia Brass Band being shot. That was at Chartres Street, but you've covered that the funeral. But we've got the Louis Armstrong International Airport was used for the exterior of the New Orleans airport. But in terms of the actual flying school, it's actually shot at Lakefront Airport in New Orleans. And there's a great. Is it called the Lost? documentary of live and let die on the blu-ray yes so it's yeah so there's a lot of footage on when they were doing this they seem happy to just drive around in cars and planes and just smash everything you know they seem to be winging it in certain uh places so it'd be like trying a car driving up a ramp and trying to go over a plane it doesn't it just smashes to pieces and and that's it <laughs> But there's a, there's a good bit where Guy Hamilton is is talking Roger through the 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 route, the route for the actual plane where the the wings get clipped off, and then he does a he does the the route and drives through it. But yeah, it's it's, it's check that out on the Blu-ray. That's that's well worth a look. That was also it was also used as the headquarters of a company fictional company called Ferris Aircraft in the 2011 film Green Lantern. Oh, what a film. What a film. <laughs> I think that's the first time we've mentioned Green Lantern on the podcast, and it's all the better for it. I can't believe it's taken this long. <laughs> and the the end of the boat race, 
at the Southern Yacht Club in New Orleans. That's that's where that that takes place. Uh, so where Sheriff Pepper finds out that Bond is a British spy. On whose side? I'm not doing the impression. <laughs> and then on the on the back of that, I've got it's where, when he went to went to hospital with the kidney stone problem. Roger Moore goes to hospital, which you've covered. But um, interestingly enough, he was discharged and given painkillers, which actually made his urine blue. He said, I was still zonked out and in unfamiliar surroundings. When I got up for a pee at two in the morning, I opened what I thought was a bathroom door. And when it was the wardrobe and I relieved myself next morning, I discovered my mistake. I found all my lovely clothes had turned various shades of patchy blue. Good old Roger. Classic Roger. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the most interesting locations has got to be Jamaica, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not a bad location to film in. And one that we talked about many times in the podcast. Yeah, always seems to go back to Jamaica. So the uh, main, well, one of the first scenes we see in Jamaica is the bus stunt, and this is a. I always remember this. If 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 I look back on Bond films, this is one of the ones that I remember as a kid. This is a perfect example of how *Living at Die* is made for for kids. Chopping the top off of a a London double decker bus, um, so they're driving around the bottom bit. It's such a simple and fun thing. But it's so Roger as well. It's just so ridiculous. It's almost like a carry-on film um, scene. And uh, yeah, so they filmed that in Jamaica. Um, it was actually a, a London bus and they adapted it by... What they did was they took off the top section of the bus, but then they put it back on and they used ball bearings so that it stayed in place up until the point when it touched something and then it just rolled off, which is quite a smart way to do it. Um and the stunts, um, were, they were formed by a guy called Morris Patchett, who was actually a London transport bus driver, driving instructor. So imagine if you were a driver in London buses and somebody said to you, oh, do you want to do you come to Jamaica and uh, film a Bond film? Because we've got a, a London bus in it. Nah, I've got to drive to Hoxton. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, not interested, mate. Yeah, that's like the, that's, that's the sort of thing dreams are made of, isn't it? Like, yeah. like a, a Bond film something where you get involved for being a, a bus driver i think it's a fun scene i think it's a silly scene it's um it it looks good obviously the bus thing is so memorable and it's one of the most memorable i won't say stunts but visual effects that they use throughout the bond series yeah and it looks really good i'm not gonna I, i'm gonna i've got another one to go through in jamaica so i'm not gonna go too much detail on the, the bus stunts the big one is the crocodile farm the one that everybody remembers. Uh, even at the time, I imagine it was so ridiculous and groundbreaking because probably nobody in the UK had ever seen a crocodile um, at that point. So the the sheer terror involved with it would be ridiculous. But they, uh, you sort of touched on this earlier, Butler. Um, they were searching for locations around Jamaica to film in and they, they sort of found this crocodile farm and it was owned by a, a guy called Ross Kananga. Um, and it said, there's a sign that said, trespassers will be eaten. And, and instantly they just went, yep, just get that in. Just, <laughs> we've just got to get that in. There's there's no way we can avoid that. So Mankiewicz just put it in the script and obviously used used his name as the, the, the film's villain, which is ridiculous to think about it. But it's such an integral part to that film. Like that, that stunt, you see Roger run across the mouths of these, uh, well, run across the tops of these, these uh, crocodiles and the last one, tries to bite his foot and jumps across. And that was actually Ross Kananga who suggested that that stunt. He said, oh, oh we can do this. I, you know, it's my my farm. I know what, what's going to happen. So he uh, performed it as well. And yeah, it took 
uh, five takes to complete that. You really want one for that, but he did five on that one. <laughs> have you seen? Have you watched them? Have you watched the takes? No. Have you seen some those? of them? Some of them are, you know, he falls in and everything, and they're properly getting getting angry because they'd worked out by the third time what he was doing. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's, imagine <laughs> yeah. if somebody suggested that nowadays. You'd be like, what? Don't know. Don't yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it just it's it's just fantastic. The, the fact that 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 happened and that was a part of the filmmaking process with actors is just phenomenal. Um, yeah. So yeah, and uh, and the last one, it actually tears his trousers. Yeah. Um, because it bite, because it bite, bites bites his leg uh, um, on the final take. So yeah, the crocodile farm is just such a. I it's almost like Connery would never do that. It just wouldn't happen in a Connery <laughs> film. But in a Roger film, it's just so perfect. Because it's almost like a carry-on film, isn't it? It's just running across crocodiles while they're trying to bite you. Sean wouldn't do that. Sean would have shot him, punched him. <laughs> um, um, it, Rod, it was Roger's idea to wear the um, the shoes that he wore as well. The, <laughs> Thanks, the, Roger. <laughs> the alligator, alligator skin shoes, which yeah. then Ross Kananga wore to run across them. I mean, if how to make them even angrier. Like, what the... What yeah, are you yeah. wearing in your feet? Right, that's it. We're going to snap him. Roger, Roger, not only making fun of the, the the other actors and the staff, just really having a go at the crocodiles as well. <laughs> yeah. any, any opportunity he's got to prank some <laughs> living thing on set, he'll, t- he'll take it. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's uh, Jamaica. Um, fantastic place. To fit. Probably one of the best... Jamaican uses they've ever found in the Bond films. Yeah, a, 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 um, and and using it in different ways as well. I think you know it's not always as Jamaica, is it? It's um, different places. Yeah, yeah. Pinewood. So in December, uh, the crew left America to return. Uh, sorry, left Jamaica to head for Pinewood before they uh, started filming in the new year. They had a few days before Christmas working and then they had Christmas um, and then back to work uh, in the new year of 1973. Um, At Christmas though, interestingly, a teaser trailer for Live and Let Die was cut together and shown in cinemas as a teaser for the film coming out later that year, just using stuff that they'd shot um, on location uh, in New Orleans and Jamaica. So uh, I thought that was quite interesting. Mm. But sets that they used at, uh, uh, stuff that they shot at Pinewood include uh, Bond's Hotel Bungalow, where he meets Rosie Carver. Um, Roger talks about having to spend the entire day shivering in a cold bath just to shoot that scene where he's shaving in the bath. Um, they shot the, the the New York Fillet of Soul restaurant there with the spinning booth. And this was where Roger finally got to work with Yafit Kotto for the first time. And you know, we were talking about this uh, tension between Kotto and the rest of the cast, but uh, Roger addresses it in his diary. He said, when Yafit Kotto came to New Orleans and gave the Black Power salute, there were those who said he had a chip on his shoulder. As a black actor in a predominantly white industry, perhaps he believed he had to assert himself. One thing I do know is that he ha- he need have no chip on his shoulder about his acting ability, because today he showed himself to be an actor of extraordinary depth and power he said today was not b-day 57 but k for cotto day um he was counting down the days he'd been playing bond in his diary that's why i said b-day 57 another set was the cabin of corals boat um which uh, uh, he shared a scene with solitaire and then you've got kananga's lair and roger said it's the biggest set i have ever worked on and when i visited last night to see where i would be working today it looked i looked in the mysterious and gloomy half light like some giant aladdin cave 
And they obviously shot that scene where him and um, Solitaire are, are rigged up on the um, the platform above the water. And, and he talks about the tension on the set that day. He said, it was not an easy day. I loathe bad feeling on the set and I find it very difficult to work when there is tension. Guy, who is one of the nicest people around and a talented, well-organised director, has a problem with Yaffet, which seems to stem from the way Yaffet sees his role and Guy's differing interpretation of it. They shoot the showdown with Mr Big in the water tank. Uh, Yaffet Cotto reveals at this point, though, that he can't actually swim, and that causes some tension with Guy Hamilton. Um, eventually, though, he does get in the water and, and shoot the scene rather than doing it with a stunt double. They shoot the other fillet of soul in New Orleans in, in uh, Pinewood and the, all the voodoo sacrifice scenes are filmed on a, on a set in, in Pinewood as well. So that looks like you're on a tropical island, but no, they're really just on a set there. Most interestingly, though, we've got James Bond Bond's flat in the film uh, yes. where we meet him in bed with Madeline Smith. So interestingly, a few things about the, the flat. We've seen it before in uh, Doctor No, um, but it's slightly different this time around. Bond's bedroom, if, if you know, is right at the centre of the flat. So, it, and it's set up high up. So it's sort of saying that, you know, Bond's bedroom is his, the most important part of his flat, which, you know, as we know about Roger Moore as James Bond, he, he likes the ladies. So that's quite interesting. You've got the small kitchen, which is set off from the, the reception area. And that's very small, but cutting edge. It's very modern. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit more, yeah, contemporary than the rest of the rest of the flat. And one thing that really everyone always talks about is the espresso machine that Bond uses, which mm-hmm. would have been quite a rare sight in kitchens in 1973. And this is something that M comments on. But I don't know if you've watched it, if you've watched it closely, but the, the coffee that he makes looks disgusting. Yeah, well, he steams the coffee. That's right. That's right. <laughs> he doesn't steam the milk. He steams the coffee. He adds yeah. the milk and then steams that. It's very, very strange. But yeah, and obviously this is where they shoot the scene where uh, Bond uses his gadget watch to pull down Madeline's dress. And apparently that was like just ridiculous to shoot because they had to have about five different people crammed into the wardrobe to do it. So yeah, they had to have uh, said Julie Harris, the costume designer, had to go down on her knees off camera and gently pull the dress down as the watch is by no means magnetic. Derek Cracknell was also down there on his knees with his hands up Madeline's skirt, pulling a hidden wire attached to the end of the zip, so the floor around our feet was getting pretty crowded. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, it's quite an interesting um, visual memory, that, <laughs> I imagine. Yeah. The the thing, the issue I have with this, you know when he magnetic magnetises the spoon from M? Mm. Why does M really want the spoon back? <laughs> I, I, I'm like, he's so cantankerous about that spoon he hadn't finished stirring that steamed coffee <laughs> he, steamed he doesn't even coffee. finish it that coagulated steamed coffee <laughs> um, but in terms of the Rolex watch it was designed by Sid Kane and obviously it had the buzz saw which was uh, luckily it didn't have they could actually turn that on with compressed air so they didn't have thousands of people crouching down to, to get that to work obviously it didn't work as a saw but um, but interestingly, it sold at auction in 2011 for 335,000 euros. And most of the profits went to UNICEF, courtesy of Roger. I think he signed it as well. But it's an iconic watch, but there's there's lots of them in Bond, isn't there? So but it's a stupid, watch. Always... <laughs> stupid watch. Um, in terms of the train fight, so a lot, lot of train fights. Bond loves a train fight. Um, but but this one 
This one is with Teehee, and they actually spent quite a lot of time rehearsing this. And Roger writes in the in the diaries about how how many injuries and bruises he got. But he also said that you know the window that they were, the train window that they break they used real glass, and so they they kept breaking it. So there's like five or six times. And Derek Cracknell actually suggested using Perspex, but then every time they just replaced it with glass. He said Teehee's metal arm caused problems because as Julius and I threw ourselves around the confined space of the carriage, in what could have been a perfect take, the mechanism would go wrong and we would have to begin again. Did you find out how that mechanical arm is operated? No. It's it's from his breathing. Wow. Wow. Yes. So I'm never sure why they didn't just do it with his hand. (laughs) But I guess so. It seems like they've probably wasted a bit of budget on that. <laughs> um, but in terms of the, I think it's quite a good train fight. Um, well, it's no, it's no Red Grant. Yeah, you've got to pick your battles, haven't you? And they definitely, probably, when they've started planning this, go. Oh, hold on! Did, don't you remember we did the Red Grant one as well? Do you think yeah, it was ten years ago. Though. That? Ah, it was ten years ago. Let's let's do it again. Figure, yeah, start again. This will be better <laughs> with a, with a random secondary villain that isn't that important. This looks really cheap compared to that other one, though. I think, doesn't it? It, yeah, it's, I, it's not a good, it's not a memorable scene from the film. No, it's but almost like a, it, a weird, like afterthought to the film. Like that whole Tee scene is almost like unnecessary. He's, it's, you know, when um, uh, Blofeld comes back and on the Magic Secret Service. Yeah, it's there's gravitas to it because it's Blofeld. In this one, it's like. T- oh yeah, I remember Teehee. He was in it earlier, but well, it wasn't Baron Samadhi, so not that. Yeah, the, the other thing is like Kananga's dead, right? So why is Teehee just? Yeah. Teehee's not going to take over the business, is he? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a I'm very Guy Hamilton gets... thing, oh. though, isn't it? Because he did it in Diamonds Are Forever with the henchman coming back. He does it in this one, yeah. and he does it in yeah. um, Man with the Golden Gun Man as well, doesn't gun. he? With yes, um, Nick Knack. Yeah, of course. And then there's the bit with uh, Baron Somebody turning up at the end. Yeah, an extra extra one, yeah. which is very strange. Yeah. That's the that's almost like verging on the Marvel world of post credit <laughs> sequences. Like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> Does this mean that the next film's going to be about Baron Somebody? No, not at all. I think it means every Bond film since has been about Baron Somebody. Oh, he's going to be the uh, the, the uh, <laughs> he's, cause. He's, of... caused, he's caused all the chaos. Yeah, he's, he's the master he's of all, all your he, pain. He's in charge of um, Blofeld. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that would be <laughs> so topic. good if somebody did that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm fully on board for that. Okay, so the last um, area, which is a big area, is New York. And New York was an interesting location for a lot of the filming because they planned to film in Harlem for a lot of it because, you know, the, the, a lot of it's set in Harlem and it's set in the clubs in Harlem. And the this, this production was filmed between Pinewood and in, in New York. But they had a lot of problems in filming in Harlem because um, apparently they had to pay protection money to local Harlem gangs to ensure the crew's safety. Um, and when and when and they they just had to keep paying this money. And eventually it ran out, and they said we can't keep paying this money for protection. So they just they had to leave. They 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 didn't have any options. They couldn't keep filming there because it was getting too expensive for these protection gangs, which is ridiculous. You imagine Roger Moore there, like walking around these gangs and it just doesn't it just doesn't work i can't i can't see that way i, I can't imagine roger turned up i think no i'm not doing that no i'll just do pinewood 
so because of that, they filmed a lot of the exteriors uh, in the Upper East Side. Butler, do you remember I sent you a picture of me outside yeah. outside a sh- uh, shop? In yes, um, that was that. This that was where they filmed. Yes. So that was the uh, what's it called? The Voodoo. God, it's a silly name, isn't it? Occult. Occult. So Occult now is like a clothing store or something like that. And I went there a couple of years ago and I sent a message to Butler and he said, why, why are you sending me a picture outside this clothing store? And I said, look closer. <laughs> um, and he worked it out after that. But they did a lot of filming around there because it was easy to film there and it was safer. Because at the time, I mean, Harlem's quite nice now. It's You could film there now. But back in those days, it was, it was pretty dangerous. So... Uh, they did a lot around the Upper East Side. And then finally, the, there was the street, street Chase, and that was filmed uh, at FDR Drive in, in New York. There you go. That's that's New York. It's got a bit of bonus information. Oh, uh, fun fact. It's fun fact, yeah. So in terms of the tarot cards, they actually approached Salvador Dali to design them. Mm. Did mm. he do it? Um, but his price mm. was astronomical, apparently, so they decided not to. I'm not surprised. Um, actually designed by a guy called Fergus Hall, but Dali did keep working on them and, and they were released in 1984 and actually Tashin have released a book with all the cards in. And the oh. Emperor card has actually got Sean Connery's face. Butler's, little, Butler's uh, putting his order in now. He's, he's buying it, <laughs> isn't he? <laughs> Any, anything he can find, he'll buy. So yeah, uh, it, you can have a, have a look at some of them online, but there is a, a book of all of them available. But um, the other thing about the cards that they did use, I always found it weird. The back of the cards had double A7. Double A7, yeah. I thought that was... I mean, he's the worst spy in the world, isn't he? He's create, He's gone out of his way to create a lot of cards that have his secret call sign on to bed women. It's He's, he's an awful spy. But she has them already. She has 007 cards already. Oh, he's really put a lot of effort into that. He's, he's set up his, his own tarot card business. <laughs> God, Roger. On to post-production. So I'll start with the song because the song comes first in terms of this. So before the script had even been finished, Cubby and Harry wanted Paul McCartney to write the theme song. So McCartney got a copy of the novel and he said, I read it. I thought it was pretty good. That afternoon I wrote the song and I went in the next week and did it. It was a job of work for me in a way because writing a song around a title like that is not the easiest thing going. Despite that, I think he wrote it in 10 minutes, apparently. But anyone who's watched the Beatles documentary on Disney will uh, will, will see <laughs> his his skills that he has in writing a song in within minutes. So I'm not that surprised by that. So he's written the song, he's, he's delivered it, and Harry Saltzman actually wanted Shirley Bassey to perform it. Uh, or Obviously. F- yeah, instead of Wings. But George Martin had said that um, McCartney would only allow the song to be used if Wings performed the song in the opening credits. So that's why we see the other version performed by BJ Arnau in the club. Yeah. Which I think would have been better <laughs> as as the actual opening credits song. Mm. It's much more Bond in its sound. Yeah. That said... The song is excellent, so... I, I, think- I, I think that the this song, with Paul McCartney doing it, opened up the doors for future Bond songs. They, they sort of went... If, they'd have, if they would have had gone for that, you, you, you sort of sit, sit yourself in that same realm all the time. But, but by doing this, and it was a gamble, and it was a gamble that they took because they wanted 
to have Paul McCartney do it. And it paid off because maybe four or five of the songs that came after, they went, well, Paul McCartney did it. We can do it again. Yeah, it, it definitely did seem to be that way because it was basically Paul McCartney worked with George Martin to put this together. And that was the first time they'd worked together since Abbey Road. And so this was a, a very mainstream like you say, yeah. it's brought it, brought it out of just being niche and it's now opened it up to, to being huge. The song was actually nominated for an Academy Award as well, mm. but it lost out to The Way We Were. And the song transcends Bond because obviously it's a Paul McCartney song. So, you know, he's he's still touring and he's he's doing he Glastonbury. Still plays it. Yeah, yeah. He still plays it. And he had so much faith in the song that he actually was, was playing it at Wings gigs before the film was had been released he 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 knew it was going to be a big hit so yeah it was a huge huge success of its own right in the charts in the us in the uk and if you watched where is it uh the super bowl 2005 he did the he did it at half time Mm -hmm. and he puts on a cracking show well worth a look he seems to use all the pyrotechnics for live and let die yeah and i I, it's, it's a song that lends itself well to that sort of you know stage performance um, so yeah, it was also covered by Guns N' Roses and it, it was on their 1991 album and also appears in the movie Shrek the Third. <laughs> oh, finally we've got Shrek the Third in. <laughs> in in a scene where the, the King, Fro- King Frog, is it? Frog the Frog King dies. I haven't watched It's his funeral. And, uh, and, but what I found is quite, you know, the nod is that it, the frog chorus are singing it, and uh, you know it's, very very clever. Clever. it's got it's got to be a McCartney sort of joke, hasn't it? But, That's um, a very very in depth joke. That's... We should all be watching Shrek the Third, shouldn't we? No, you know. I'm never going to watch it. <laughs> Put it on the list. We'll we'll do it when we finish the A to Z. <laughs> yeah. So the music. Yes. So it all starts with Paul McCartney and uh, the song Live and Let Die. So John Barry, who was obviously the guy that did all the other the scores beforehand, he was engaged to do the stage musical Billy. So because they got Paul McCartney, they didn't have much money left to spend on another composer. And basically they said, could George Martin do it? George Martin, the longtime Beatles producer, he'd done the score for the Yellow Submarine movie. Um, which, by the way, is a really underrated score of music um, worth listening to. And this was only George Martin's second uh, film score after that one. So George Martin, the score was orchestrated and conducted uh, by him, recorded at the Air Studios. And yeah, it was... So um, talking about the uh, soundtrack, um, I actually interviewed David Arnold last year about Bond scores um, in in my job. And I asked him about his favourite non-John Barry James Bond scores. And he said, I love George Martin's Live and Let Die because it has that sort of mid-70s swagger. It took part of its style from the exploitation films. And part of that is because it's set in New York and Harlem with a black cast. You could hear elements of Shaft and things like that, scores that had been around since the early 70s, and George had elements of that. The funky wah-wah guitars, the drums are a bit funkier. And it really is a, a swaggering score, I think. Um, I know, Brendan, we were chatting before this that you think it's probably one of your favourite Bond scores, full stop. Yeah, I, I, I dare I say it on this podcast, but yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, it, it probably is my favourite. Yeah. Wow. There we go. It doesn't doesn't try to do John Barry. It does something slightly different to the left of it. Um, and I think that really works. There are some really good um, 
specific cues. I think one of my favourites, if he finds it, kill him. And the other one is, is Bond drops in. But I think the score on this is is really, really something special and worth listening to on its own on its own terms. And then we come to the titles. I'm not going to go into too much depth for these titles because they're pretty much, they're Morris Binder titles. They're pretty much par for the course. They're similar to what we've seen in the past. There's a few interesting elements to them. It, there's a lot of sort of semi-naked silhouettes of women in there. There's a very big focus on voodoo, the voodoo theme, voodoo references, isn't it? It's sort of quite dark uh, opening to a Bond film. There's some really quite not scary but there's a remember the scenes that the shots where they've got the lady eyes wide open yeah it's it's a very brash morris binder title sequence there's nothing new in it it's very similar to what we're used to but as as we always say with these things when there's a new bond film and there's a new bond actor you have to keep things the same and i think this is an example of where they've kept the morris binder style the same they haven't tried anything different and i think that's a smart move because You've just seen the opening sequence and it's very different than some of the previous Bond films. Um, so it's a very sort of binder opening sequence. But it is interesting. I think it is quite nice. Uh, it doesn't really push the boundaries, but I think it's a, a nice looking title sequence. I think my issue with it is it's like Boris Binder didn't hear the song. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't seem to match, does it? When the song kicks in, it's, the titles yeah. don't change. It's the screensaver. Yeah. The the burning skull I think is a nice motif though I think that's one of the most memorable yeah definitely parts of it okay uh, posters and trailers so like I said there was a trailer that played in cinemas in Christmas and then another one that came out around Easter time as well there are (laughs) I thought one of the taglines within the trailer was it's a matter of life and death it's deadlier it's livelier it's live and let die so playing on the words dead and live. Um, which I thought was quite interesting. On the Blu-ray, you can watch a trailer for the film, which was done for the milk board, and it shows Roger Moore drinking milk on set, um, Mm. which I thought was quite interesting. But talking about the poster, now the poster for this film was designed by Robert McGuinness. Um, You'll remember it, it's got... um, it's a painted poster it's one of the one of the nice sort of um, illustrated styles uh it's got bond uh, roger as bond with his in the classic pose with the gun is an angle to his face um and then his head is, is framed by an explosion so just a few of the details to note on the poster um which there aren't many variations on the poster actually for this one they're all sort of stuck to this one specific theme but the O's in Roger Moore's name are incorporated into the 007 logo. That's something they do very often. And Roger Moore takes Roger Moore's name takes top billing on the poster as well, which is quite interesting. The I in the Live and Let Die is a dagger, again, which is quite cool. And there's this whole tarot card theme as well. You've got crocodiles, you've got sharks, you've got the boat chase, you've got Baron Samady. Um, and then one of the things I really like on this poster is that one of the women on, on one of the tarot cards is holding a voodoo doll of James Bond. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. It's like this cuddly version of James Bond. That she's I'm just holding. looking now and I've never noticed it. I never noticed it until I had a good look at it the other day. And there are some really nice plain teaser posters for the film as well in, in black, white and red. Um, which it's are a beautiful poster. Out as it's well. really nice. It's yeah. a bit silly, but it's, yeah. it's, it's really nice. It reminds yeah. I think that this is... You, do you remember... Steve Coogan's Man Who Thinks He's It. Right. <laughs> he, he did a tour, Man Who Thinks He's It, and, the, and the, the, the poster for it was based on Bond. 
This right. is, I think this is the one that he's based it on. It's very right. similar. Um, and if you look in the James Bond, the poster book, there are some really nice uh, unused Bob Peake Art Deco versions of the poster as well. I would just say I don't think the posters really match up to the movie. I feel like they could have been darker, um, but it's like quite a bright poster, isn't it? But um, mm. yeah, that's it. So let's now we've got the posters and everything else. Let's Let's release the film into the world. But first, we've got Roger Moore at the Oscars. <laughs> just just as a, a side note, um, because this happened in 1973, Roger Moore presented the best the award for best actor in the Oscar at the Academy Awards with Liv Oldman. So next to each other, there were, in which she reads out most of it, doesn't she? He, he just opens an envelope. Yeah. Um, but the award went to Marlon Brando, who actually refused his Academy Award. And he actually sent up a Native American activist called Sasheen Littlefeather to explain why he rejected it. The Academy Awards didn't let her read the letter out that he'd written. But in that, you know, Roger Moore tries to hand the Oscar to her and she, you know, she pro- she had promised to Marlon Brando that she wouldn't touch it. So she didn't. So quite bizarre. I think there's only two other refusals of, a, of an Oscar in, in Oscar history. The speech she did make, it it's got a weird it's weird it's uncomfortable isn't it the the booze that you can hear um, yeah it's it's not 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 a nice watch but um but roger was there to on hand backstage to sort of help her out and dick gutman who is a, a who was a writer for hollywood um he was he was there and witnessed it so backstage they're all being told that everyone who has been involved with the the Oscars and won an award had to go out afterwards and sing God Bless America in a tribute to John Ford. And obviously she wasn't an Oscar winner and, you know, John Ford had created movies that killed Native Americans on screen, you know. So it didn't really match up and it was was unfair to put her in that situation. So Roger steps in to the organiser and says she's not an Oscar winner. Do you see her holding any trophy? And the guy says, yep, but she made a speech. And and Roger says, yes. And did you hear that speech? A speech is a speech, the guy says. So they are basically trying to force her to go on stage for this this song, um, which would make her feel really awkward and is, is quite sort of unfair to make her do. But Roger basically creates a diversion by knocking over some scenery, security guard is attention diverts. Roger gives the guy who who's remembering this Dick Gutman, he gives him the nod, and that's for them to make their getaway. And uh, they go off to the elevator, and Roger again sort of stumbles and blocks the security guard. And yeah, Roger he's basically all tangled up with Roger. He breaks free, and then behind him the doors of the elevator shut. And he says he sees Roger smiling and giving a gentle wave of bon voyage. So yeah, Roger, what a legend. Roger there on hand to uh, to save Sashin Littlefeather. Wow, I didn't know any of that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know that. Thought it was quite a nice story. What a man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so something slightly less interesting. The premiere, <laughs> standard fair premiere. It was uh, held. The world premiere was held at Odeon Leicester Square. Uh, 6th of July 1973. Interestingly, it was actually a week later than the US release, which was on the 27th of June, 
which rarely happens. Your standard people were there. It was a Princess Anne affair, so Princess Anne popped along. Uh, Michael Caine turned up. Burt Reynolds turned up, who, of course, was in the running for, for playing Bond. Peter Sellers was there. Gregory Peck, David Frost, David Bowie, Lulu, all of the big the big hitters. So, yeah, other than that, it, it went on general release in London in on the 6th of July and uh, nationwide on Thursday, the 12th of July. So, yeah, that's the premiere. Nothing interesting to report there. <laughs> scathing it's quite scathing. hard to find out about premieres unless something actually interesting happens because they are quite boring I think generally when you look back on them <laughs> right let's look at what the critics said well, let's go straight to Roger Ebert we're big fans of his, yes, his stuff Ebert, so. yeah. Live and Let Die is not exactly the best it has all the necessary girls gimmicks subterranean control rooms uniform goons and magic wristwatches it can hold but it doesn't have the wit and doesn't have the style of the best Bond movies Moore has the superficial attitudes, attributes for the job, the urbanity, the quizzically raised eyebrow, the calm under fire and in bed. But Connery was always able to invest the role with a certain humour, a sense of the ridiculousness. Moore has been supplied with a lot of double entendres and double takes, but he doesn't seem to get the joke. Interesting there from Roger E, but not a fan. Mm. Variety uh, in their review in 1973 said the script reveals the that, that plot lines have descended further to the level of the old Saturday afternoon serial, which is something that we've talked about. You know, it's a more younger, maybe aiming Bond film. And then in a retrospective review in, in 2012, Variety uh, said, more posed a refreshingly different take on the character, one that accentuated Bond's gentleman spy mystique, partly necessitated by the fact that he wasn't as brawny or tough as his predecessor. And the film currently has a 65% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is the cusp, I think, of making it fresh rated. I think it has to be 65 or above. So it's one of those that sort of middling uh, reviewed Bond films, which I think is probably fair. But it's still a tomato you'd use out of the fridge, wouldn't you? You'd just be a bit squishy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of the box office, the budget of $7 million dollars, it actually grossed $161.8 million. So it was a big success. And like we said earlier, it was the third highest grossing film of the year. But other than that, it also holds the record for the most viewed broadcast film on TV in the UK. Wow. It attracted 23.5 million viewers when it was on ITV in January 1980. So, you know, seven, seven-year-old film and it's managed to... Get that, get January. That That's an interesting time. Not not the Christmas hit. No, the January lull. Mm. So I thought I would ask you what we've got the top five here, the top five most viewed broadcast films in the UK. Can you guess the other four? On it when? What was the year? No, no, this is ever all time. Ever? Okay, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give you a clue. Another another two Mary bombs Poppins. are in there. No. <laughs> Sound of music. No, you're barking at the wrong it, tree. Diamonds it, are forever. Few... Oh yeah. Okay. And Spy Who Loved Me. Hmm. Uh, twenty-two million and twenty-three uh, million. Crocodile Dundee, surprisingly, twenty-one point yeah. seven million in nineteen eighty-nine. Wow. Sound of music. And Jaws. Ah. Oh, I just said twenty-three million. Ah. Oh. There's no sound of music. Stop, Why are stop, we so stop. obsessed with sound of music? <laughs> yeah. 
Stop Stop saying Sound of Music. It's not on there. <laughs> wait, wait, hang on. We talked about Sound of Music when we did Diamonds Are Forever, I think. What didn't Diamonds yeah, because Are Forever the overtake BBC. Sound of Music? No, the BBC played Yeah, the BBC played that it on the same it. night. Yeah. There we go. That's why we've got it in our heads. Yeah, so forget about it now. Okay. It's done. Have you done the list now? <laughs> I've done the list. Okay, right. Jaws. That was a that was the top one, wasn't it? No, live and let die. Have you not been paying attention? I was thinking about Sound of Music. <laughs> 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 and why you were wrong for not mentioning it. Did it win any awards? Uh, so it was nominated for, as you've mentioned, uh, Sorry. Academy Award for Best Original Song. It was nominated for the Grammy Award for Best Song, for uh, written for a motion picture. But it did win the Evening Standard Best Film. So not really winning any awards there, um, but nominated. <laughs> Right, that brings us to the final section. So let's kick off first with some three-word reviews from our followers on Twitter. So uh, every time we do one of these, we say, send us your three-word reviews, um, and uh, our followers on Twitter respond. Um, excitingly, uh, we've actually got a celebrity response. Do you want to hear it? Oh. So uh, Mr. Sanjeev Bhaskar, the actor... He replied with his three-word review of Live and Let Die, which is more Bond fun. Which is, obviously, the word more is a pun, is a pun on Roger Moore. So mm, got that, you, got that, yeah, got that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Simon Warner goes straight to the point. It says, unfortunately, very racist. Fable Boy Blue says, Yafit Koto rules. Agreed. Uh, Navin Ranjagopalan, he says, coolest Bond ever. Sheriff J.W. Pepper, thanks for messaging, said Sheriff Pepper boy. So, yeah. And more 007, please, said best film ever. Wow. It's quite Mm. quite bold. That is Um, very bold. uh, Steve O'Brien said best Mankiewicz movie. I think I'll agree with him on that one. Our friends at Cine Compass said greatest boat chase. Uh, First one that came in, Paul Casey, a brilliant debut. So there we go. Mm. Oh, actually, no, I'll I'll go back to this one. This one's quite funny. Mrs. Bell Rocks. That's from Medium Atomic. <laughs> yes, we agree, Mrs. Bell Rocks. I yeah, wish we'd see more well. of yeah, her. That's the one. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's our three word reviews. Right. I guess, like, what's the legacy of this film? Where does it stand now in the in the current pantheon of Bond films? I mean, well, it's problematic, isn't it? That thing, that's the first thing to say about it. Yeah, it's a very... Even in... I mean, there's a lot of Bond films that are, you know, touch on things that... A, a very problematic but i think this one really went all in on prob- problematic issues it, mm. there's a lot of stuff in this film that really were tricky at the time and i mean i think if you're looking at the whole pantheon of bond films this is probably the trickiest one to to watch and if we ever get to a point where people start start cancelling bond films i think this will be the first one that people really mm-hmm. focus on but what i would say is that this film outside of that really opened up bond the bond series to be something different i think around that time there was a, there was a lot of difficulties around you know it's connery we tried to get someone else in we get connery back in do we continue with that and they really took some gambles on the film and they really opened it up to a completely new type of actor and a completely new way of telling the bond story massively to its credit and and it and it just opened up what you could do with Bond, I think. And they realised at this point that they were in control of it and it would shift with the themes that were going on in the world. 
but also it meant that they no longer were they beholden to an actor or, or a way that they were previously doing it. Yeah, I think at yeah, this it, point they they needed to to do that to get through the seventies. Yeah. You know, they couldn't have carried on as they were going. Um, yeah. And I think opening it up to different different ways. Who was it who said the quote that you know Bond doesn't belong on a on a poppy farm. Who who was it who said that? Because I think they needed to go down different. There's only so many times you can climb mm. down a volcano lair. Yeah. You know, in many gone. ways, this was sort of like the tipping point of Bond, where many many film series throughout the 60s and 70s and early 70s stopped at that point because they were stuck in a theme and a style that they were doing. This is the tipping point where, but they realised that Bond wasn't a set series it was a phenomenon that could exist outside of what they'd done before and i think it's very important for that but also i think it's 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 a it's a good film in many ways i think there's a lot of ways you can view this film so this is a really good enjoyable film yeah i know we talked about being problematic but in terms of like the representation on screen it was bold in in its time you know this is a very white centric franchise and what they've done is basically given half the roles to to black people which in in itself is is a is a step in the right direction but yeah i mean the stuff around the representation of 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 the minorities in the film is is tricky but like bond has done that for a long time you know dr no has a white man playing a chinese character yeah um and and the film has the films have been guilty of other things but i think you're right in what you're saying it's the it's probably the most important reboot of the of the whole franchise we've had yeah. The, the the series hitting critical junctures at a number of different times, right? Yeah. I mean, you could even say From Russia With Love, it was a crucial film as the first sequel, which which we talked about. On a Majesty's Secret Service was a crucial film. Dying at the Diamonds Are Forever, again, was a crucial film. Um, but this mm. one, really... You know how like we get you get Daniel Craig in to do the first film and it worked? It yeah. It, it, nobody thought it would. They, people were saying, you know, this isn't Bond. It's the end of Bond, and it and it worked. This was like that gamble times ten because, you know, that you hadn't they hadn't even tried anything different by this point. So it was such a such a big gamble, and it really did pay off. And I, I think that's that's the 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 tribute to the people that made it that it worked, and they made it a, a really risky scenario work very well. Because at this point, remember they've made on Her Majesties. It didn't you know, pan out very yeah. well at the time, yeah. and they've gone back to Connery. So they're not even aware that they can make a decent Bond film without him. Yeah, you know, so yeah, it's yeah. it's huge. Yeah, it really is. And yeah. we were saying before I came on, I think this is probably the Bond film I've seen the most because of, like you said, that, that reason that it does a it is a watchable for younger audiences. It's got that right level of like peril, um, and. Sort of the battle between good and evil, whatever. Um, it's quite easy to follow. Um, so I think it has a strong place in in my mm-hmm. uh, uh, feelings for James Bond. Just it just there's just so much iconography in it that is instantly recognisable. That just screams James Bond to you. I think in this film, yeah. even though actually it's quite far removed from other other Bond films, there is something uh, quite mystical about it. I think. On to the, your least favourite moment, Wheatley, the, the ranking of the Bond films. Now, you don't know where we ranked Licence to Kill last episode, do you? No, and I'm very interested to find out. 
Okay, so we've done, uh, if you're new to these, we've covered uh, 11 of the James Bond films so far as we go through them in alphabetical order. And we've been ranking them as we go in a purely randomly subjective, uh, objective manner. At number 11, Casino Royale, 67. At number 10, Diamonds Are Forever. At number 9, Die Another Day. At number 8, A View to a Kill. At number 7, For Your Eyes Only. And number six, License to Kill. At number five, Casino Royale. Four, Golden Eye. Three, Doctor No. Two, From Russia with Love. One, Goldfinger. So, where in that ranking does Live and Let Die belong? What's um, number five? Get, at number five is Casino Royale. Okay. So, it's got to go for me between License to Kill and For Your Eyes Only, I think. Mm-hmm. Brendan? Brendan? Yep, can't can't disagree with that actually. Yeah, it can't go any higher than License to Kill, and it's but it's, I'd rather watch it, and it's a better film than For Your Eyes Only. So yeah, what's yeah. number six? <laughs> License to Kill. Oh, I'm going above kill. License to Kill. Just one above yep. License to Kill. So you want to put it above License to Kill? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we overrule. So um, well, you're to kill. wrong. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Any listeners want to back me up on that, please do. <laughs> well, look, you'll do your own ranking at the end and uh, we can disagree, agree to disagree at that point, but uh, that's where it's going. So, yeah, so that's the ranking. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think about Live and Let Die, though. So if people want to email the show and let us know what their thoughts on Live and Let Die, how do they get hold of us? Podcast at jamesbondaz.co.uk And on social media? At jamesbondaz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode um, we really appreciate everyone who um, messages us and, and contacts us um, and listens to all the podcasts if you get to this point you're obviously one of the hardcore faithful so thank you very much we were asked recently if there's a way of supporting the show and we can announce now that we have launched a coffee page you aware of this and it's forward slash James Bond A to Z and you know if you are able to donate any money that will pay for us to have some mint juleps over uh, a James Bond movie at some point. But um, yeah, uh, we would appreciate anything you can give. Obviously, times are hard at the moment. So, um, But yes, thank you so much for listening. It just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly What are you? Some kind of doomsday machine boy? Well, we got a cage strong enough to hold an animal like you here. Captain, would you enlighten the sheriff, please? Yes, sir. J.W., let me have a word with you. J.W., now this fellow's from London, England. He's an Englishman working in cooperation with our boys, a sort of secret agent. Secret agent? On whose side? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, 
Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.